Are you ready for the best podcast of your life? Well, I'll leave that up to you to decide. But I have a mystery guest here today that will reveal in the beginning of the podcast. For now, just stay tuned and hang on, because it's going to be a great show. It's Driving Change from ATI. I'm Jeff Berman. This podcast was created to improve our members' experience and to further assist with their growth. My hope is that you'll find the stories you hear from fellow shop owners relatable to where you are, where you were, or where you want to be. Ultimately inspiring you to take that next necessary step. You'll be hearing how others fought the same fight and what they did to get through it and come out better on the other side. Tune in each month for another inspiring story to drive change in your shop. So I got to tell you guys, I am so excited for the guest that I have for you today. This is going to be awesome. I have got a rock star with us, a legend, if you will, in our industry. So we're going to play a little game. I'm going to give you a chance to guess who it is because I'm not going to tell you until we're done. So this person who I'm about to talk to, his uh, career has spanned five decades, 52 years to be exact. He started, or his dad started out in Brooklyn, New York in 1947. Ultimately, they moved to California, and his dad recruited him into the business at that point in 1966, where that's where this person's career started. He wrote a lot of things in many publications over the years, a motor service, service station management, a jobber warehouse and expert, and I would imagine this, these are for the real seasoned people listening today, because I personally have heard of none of those, all right? Most recently um, worked or wrote for Motor Age, and the most recent would be Ratchet and Wrench. In 2019, he published a book called Misfire. Most of you now know who I'm talking about. And uh, ultimately, the business that he started with his dad, uh, he sold in, in March of 2017, and is living the last five years, in, or almost five years, in the fun state of retirement. So, with that being said, I'd like to ask our mystery guest to say hello. Yeah, hello. Is there anything, mystery guest, you can add to that story that I missed? Actually, I started my writing career as a speaker. Delivered a speech for the Equipment and Tool Institute in 1984. The meeting was attended by a number of different uh, publishers from those books that we were just talking about. Was offered the opportunity to write by two publishing companies, and I chose Hunter Publishing Company which published Motor Service and Jobber and Warehouse, Warehouse Executive and Service Station Management. It was a, an interesting beginning to a, a, a writing and speaking career. Uh, and that, was, that was really based upon the need, my need, to help other shop owners avoid making the, mis the mistakes that I made. And, and that was really important to me because I was really good at making mistakes and made a lot of them. And it was intergenerational. I mean, both my dad and I made mistakes together that were pretty colossal. I wanted to be sure that I gave those shop owners that were willing to listen to me the opportunity to go ahead and get a, some kind of a head start moving forward with their own careers and avoiding those. You know, it's easy to walk on water if you know where the rocks are. So right. you just step from one rock to the other. And that was my, my goal in all the writing and speaking and educating seminar work that I've done, done over the years, videos. I don't think I've missed much of anything. 
you have done so much to give back to so many in this industry. I mean, my experience with you has only been somewhat recently in that, you know, the 18 years, I say recently, 18 years that I've been with, with ATI, I was introduced to you by Chubby. And, um, you know, at first it was like starstruck. After we started talking, I went, wow, this is just a real guy. And, you know, we just, I don't know. I, I feel like we've clicked in many ways. I hope you feel the same way. I've always had a huge respect for you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I, I worked, I've really worked hard to, uh, to give back to the industry that, that I, I really love so much. And the people in the industry who are probably the best, the finest people I've ever, I've ever encountered. Anywhere. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. And I've, I've done so much in so many ways in my thinking to be able to do the same things. And I can only hope to accomplish a fraction of what you were able to accomplish over all those years. So thank you. That being said, should we let the cat out of the bag? If you don't know who this is at this <laughs> point, you're probably living under a rock, but go ahead. Tell, tell them who you are. Hello there. My name is Mitch Schneider. This oh. is going to be a fantastic time. I can't wait. I want to just tell everyone before Mitch gets started is that he and I spent probably an hour before we started this recording. I listened to so many fantastic stories that Mitch shared with me, and we're going to share some of those fantastic stories with you here today. His experience is just, just endless, really. And I'm sure we could do the, the next 50 podcasts could be just you and me. And I can't imagine how many lessons that they would learn from all of that. But I'm going to ask you, Mitch, to start from the beginning. I mean, it really started with, you know, 1966, as you shared with me, when your dad said, uh, I can't do this without you. Take it from there, would you? I'm, I'd be really happy to do that. But before I do that, I, there is one thing I'd really like to say, and I think it's kind of important for, for anyone who's listening to this to recognize. And, and that is that even while I was teaching, even while I was doing seminars, even while I was writing for the magazine, I was a member of the ATI family. And I had my coaching calls once a week, like everybody else does. In many cases, my coach saved me from myself in a lot of instances. So ATI is very near and dear to my heart, as are all of you. But talking about that feeling is mutual, by the way, Mitch. <laughs> Thank you. That goes both ways. But go ahead. I, I I would think that my career really started in the 50s when I would ride into Brooklyn from Long Island with my dad in order for me to be with him. And unfortunately, because he was always working, if I wanted to be with him, I had to go where he was working. And he was always working at our service station in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, New York. I started pumping gas and washing windows and checking oil ultimately. When How I was old were you? eight, nine years old when I started. My God. I was, I was so young, I had to stand on a wooden milk crate in order to reach the windshield. I did the same thing with, with Grandpa, and all he made me do was clean the bathrooms and wipe down hoses with gasoline, if you can imagine that. <laughs> no one would do that anymore. Yeah, no. Well, <laughs> I, there's a story about, about those chemicals and solvents and, and the danger involved, and then we'll get to that prob probably later on. But... Um, so I'd like to think that I was born into this business, I, I, the fourth generation, really, in, in the automotive-related industries, in the garage business particularly. And when we moved to California, uh, my dad was working as a mechanic in an imported car dealership and ultimately had the urge, you know, a second entrepreneurial seizure, seizure and decided to open up a, a service station in Santa Monica, came to me and said, I need your help. 
he's saying to me that he needed my help, which was really kind of funny. Looking back on it now, I realized how how lame that really was because he certainly didn't need my help. I was 19 years old at the time, didn't know my ass from a hole in the ground. I didn't know what I would help him with, but he needed my help in order to keep me from joining the Marine Corps in 1966, which may not have been the smartest thing I, I would have ever, ever done. And it worked because I had a very strong sense of loyalty to the family. And we opened a Richfield service station. And you may not be familiar with that, especially if you're on this, the East Coast or the Mid-Atlantic states, but you might be familiar with Atlantic Oil Company. And Atlantic bought Richfield, or they merged together to form Atlantic Richfield or ARCO. We opened that service station in 66, and we operated in Santa Monica until 1980. In 1979, I left the service station to open an independent repair shop in Simi Valley, California. And my dad joined me in 1980 when the service station was sold. And we were together until he passed in 1983. And he worked until he was 82 years old and uh, became ill, went in for heart surgery, and unfortunately wound up with a hospital-borne infection. The rest, as they say, is history. I worked with my dad for 38 years, and I worked with my mother for 40. was fortunate enough to do that. Any of the lessons that I share with anybody are lessons primarily learned sitting at my father's feet and working with him for all those uh, all those years. You know, Mitch, not to cut you off, but I, I just want to add something that I'm willing to bet in my 18 years doing this, you know, coaching, that if I, if I had to put a percentage on how many people I talk to are family-owned businesses, I'm going to tell you the majority of the people listening, as I'm sure you know, are family-owned businesses. So, you know, the, the lessons that you learn from dad or just being in the family business, I'm sure are going to ring true for so many listening. So. I think they're really relatable on so many different levels, especially in closely held family-owned businesses, and especially when it comes to transitioning from the first generation to the second or the second to the third. And um, it's a really interesting story about that. We were computerized. We, we computerized the shop in the early 80s. Uh, we were actually on a timeshare mainframe computer. <laughs> so so uh, we were innovators, I guess, among the very <laughs> few that did that. But the, the gentleman that ran that company uh, brought in a speaker and the speaker, his subject matter was closely the transitioning of closely held family owned and operated businesses. And he was a specialist in that. And he drew a, a, uh, a bell curve, perfect bell curve in the course of his presentation. And he said, this is, this is, the life, most businesses, the entrepreneur starts the business, it takes off, it moves slightly, it gets better and better and better and better and better until it gets to the top. And it's really doing well and everything planes off and you can relax a little bit and enjoy the fruits of your labor, take some money out of the business, take a vacation here and there. And then it's time for that owner to release control of that business, especially if it's family owned and operated to the second generation. And the second generation owner is forming his own bell curve, if you can visualize that, mm -hmm. that begins yeah. afterwards. And there's a point where that second owner, that neophyte owner, is starting to go ahead and feel his oats, starting to get used to what he's doing and trying to make the changes that he wants to make. While the first owner is starting to recognize they're maybe on the downward curve or the downward portion of that curve, and they don't want to be there. And there is tension that occurs there quite naturally. We experienced that in our business. And, and what I tell people, and I told people for years, 
when I was doing seminars of coming in contact with any shop owners that you might, you may be, you know, if you're in a, lucky enough to be in a partnership and a partnership that works, you have an opportunity to win an argument with your partner, you know, based on logic and reason. But if you're in business with your father, my guess is that it's going to be really hard for you to win an argument with your father because they always pull rank. Wait, wait, wait. You told me when we were talking about this earlier that you can't win an argument with your father. You changed that on me. <laughs> yes, I did. I, I did. I, well, that's what that's what growth and learning is all about, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to remain stagnant. But the fact mm. of the matter is, you can't win an argument with your father. It's unlikely that you'll ever win an argument with your father, um, unless you actually lose your mind. And I lost my mind where my journey started as a writer and speaker and educator in the industry. I delivered a speech in 1984 for the Equipment and Tool Institute. They wanted a state of the industry address. And this is a really fascinating piece of history, as far as I'm concerned, my, in my own life, because it was a perfect, it was a perfect storm of opportunity and benign neglect. The, uh, the first person they asked to speak decided they weren't going to do it at the last minute. The program manager was somebody that I knew through uh, the first computerized automotive diagnostic computer, the Bear Ace. ACE, Automotive Computerized Equipment, the development of that system. And we were we actually were the first independent repair shop in California to own one of those. So, and I was calling, I was calling them every week. I was calling them multiple times a week saying, did you know it does this? Did you know it does that? You know, you can go ahead and diagnose a diesel using the temperature probe. I mean, it was all kinds of, of weird things like that. But but the person who was supposed to speak and deliver this industry address, this state of the industry address chose not to do it. And they called me at the last minute. And, and it was one of those great experiences where they said, well, don't worry about it. Don't get excited about it because we really don't expect much. So just give us, you know, the state of the industry message and, and that'll be fine. And that's, that was where it ended. They, they never bothered to tell me exactly what that meant. And they left it up to me to figure it out for myself. And I was really angry. In 1984, I was really angry. And I'm angry enough to contemplate leaving the industry. I didn't want to be in the industry. I couldn't make any money in the industry. And the thing that happened to me at that point was I realized that I had these two really bright children and that someday they would be bright enough to go to college if they desired to do that, if they so choose, chose to do that. And I knew with a perfect faith that at that point, I couldn't afford to send them to the colleges that they would probably be able to attend. And I was, I was mad. I was angry. This, for me, the state of the industry wasn't very good. I did ask them how long I, I, I had on the program, how long I was supposed to speak for. And they said 55 minutes. So I wrote a 55-minute address. They didn't tell me that it was 30 minutes and 15 minutes for questions and answers. So I went ahead and, and wrote a 55-minute address about everything that was wrong with our industry low self-esteem, stigma, stereotype, lack of compensation, lack of respect, all of the things that, that were bothering me about the business. And, and some, some things that I was incredibly prescient at that moment to recognize. I realized that if somebody like me, who loved fixing cars and loved this industry and loved the people in it, was willing to leave, there had to be something terribly wrong with the industry. And if I was ready to leave, there would be other people that might be ready to leave as well. And I saw the industry through our involvement, my dad's involvement, my involvement with association affiliations in the industry. I saw the industry graying and I saw the number of shop owners 
not replenishing themselves with new blood. And I saw, I started in 66, as, as you pointed out, and found myself going to class, mostly repair classes, you know, classes on automotive uh, diagnostics and repair. And we started out and there were a whole bunch of guys my age who worked at different shops in that area in West LA and in Santa Monica, who showed up at the same classes all the time. And I noticed that the number of us kept getting smaller because a lot of these mechanic technicians were peeling off to do other things because they couldn't make enough money in the industry to sustain themselves. So what I did is I painted a, a really dark picture of the industry as it really was, because nobody told me what taboos I couldn't speak about. And I wound up giving that address nine times in, in a year after that, all around the industry. Wow. So I was at, and it was really frustrating. It's like, don't you want me to talk about something else? And they would say, no, we want the, we want the, give me your tired and broken car speech. Yep. We want the, we want the tired, give me the tired and broken car speech. And I did that. And that the second place that I was able to go ahead and deliver that speech, I think it was the second or third place I was able to deliver that speech was at the Congress of Automotive Repairs and Services uh, in New Orleans, the first cars in New Orleans from the Automotive Service Association. And at the Automotive Service Association cars event was a speaker named Dick Benet of blessed memory. He gave his he gave his speech about how to become a black belt shop owner, a black belt in shop owner ownership and management. And he came and it was great because he came down instead of getting up on the podium from behind, he came walking down the aisle in this huge auditorium with hundreds of, of shop owners there. And he was wearing a karate gi and a, and a black belt. And that's the way he gave his address. It was an hour. If I had to list grievances in my own shop and in, in our shop, in my own personal professional life, he addressed almost all of them. But most of all, he went ahead and ex explained in great detail how we as owners and operators were entitled to more than we were taking out of our businesses. And we weren't paying ourselves enough. We were so worried about what the customer was going to pay that we weren't charging enough. In wait, 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 wait. What year was this? 1984. This sounds exactly like the conversations I have with my clients today. <laughs> Absolutely. Nothing's changed. At I have to tell you something. <laughs> if you, if you read it, give me your tired and broken cars and you read that address and you look at all the things that I laid out in that speech, I have no idea how I, how I was able to figure all of that out, how I saw all the things that I saw that, that were transpiring and have transpired since then. But these are universal problems that still exist to this day. That's amazing. I came back from that. I came back from cars. I was like a wild man. I was like a lunatic. I, and, and, You've got to appreciate the fact that I was so frustrated and angry and upset. And now I had ammunition. I had someone who had pointed out to me that there is another way, that the way you're doing things may not be the only way or may not be the right way. And as I mentioned when we were speaking earlier, my mother, my father, and I had breakfast together every single morning at work from the day we opened. We we had breakfast. And this is a good, this is really important for those of you that are in business you know, in a family-owned business, for especially for those youngins that are there, or for the parents 
of the, the young man that, or woman that's involved in the industry. Have breakfast. Make sure you share a meal, even when you're not talking to each other, especially when you're not talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. sooner or later, somebody's going to have to say, please pass the salt. And that's all you need to do to get conversations started again. Will they always say please? No. <laughs> no. Actually, in my family, we always said please because, I, you know, my dad was pretty scary even when I was an adult. But in, in, in any case, I, said, I came back and I said, I said, we're raising our labor. This is breakfast conversation, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning before we went into the, the station to take our shift. We're, we're, I'm raising the labor rate. You can't do that. I said, I'm raising the labor rate. I'm raising it 20%. We're going to $36 an hour. Labor rate was 20, was $30 an hour. I said, we're going to $36 an hour. He says, you're out of your mind. It'll never work. Nobody will ever come to us. We'll lose all of our business. He said, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I said, I can make more money as a plumber. I can make more money as an electrician. I mean, if I can fix cars, if I'm smart enough to fix cars, I know I'm smart enough to do all of these other jobs. I mean, what do you have to know if you want to be a plumber? It goes down the pipe. <laughs> gravity. You know, I know I know gravity works. Shit rolls downhill. It's yeah, actually plumbing. And and I said, I said, we're gonna go to we're going to $36 an hour. He said, he said you can't. I, and I had every argument down cold. I had rehearsed it in the plane on the way home from New Orleans. I mean, it's like I was gonna, I was waiting for the first customer to challenge me. I wanted the first customer to challenge me because I had all this information that I could share about about time, tools, technology, all of the things that made it so critical for us to go ahead and get the money we deserve. And I raised the labor rate and time went on. Customers came in, they dropped their cars off. We gave them estimates based on the new labor rate. They went ahead and said, okay, fine, go ahead, do whatever you got to do. When will it be ready? First question, always the most important question. And I went home that night and when we, we finished up that evening, I turned around to my dad I said, those dumb goddamn customers, they don't know. How stupid could they possibly be? They didn't even realize that we had raised the labor rate 20%, $6 an hour. How dumb could they be? And I came in the next day and I was ready for that same argument. I don't think the first customer that noticed it, noticed it until three or four days after we had raised the labor rate. And they said yes halfway through my, halfway through my explanation. They said, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's that. That's good, and uh, that was the beginning of my management journey. My recognition that that there are better ways to do things than we might have been doing them, and that that I needed more information in order to go ahead and 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 move the business forward. Mitch, before you move on, there there's two things I gotta I, I gotta circle back to if that's okay. The first one is you you didn't really tell the whole story. There has to be something missing here because you went from breakfast, please pass the salt to I'm raising the labor rate. And then you said the first day, you didn't even talk about how you convinced your dad to do it. Dad clearly had some issues here. How did that go? Oh, that was easy. I didn't, I, I, if he had issues, it was too, too bad. I said, I'm raising the labor rate, period. End of report. And he said, we're going to go out of business. And I said, okay, then <laughs> <laughs> we'll go out of business because there. We'll, we'll open a plumbing shop. You know, shit goes down. What do you have to know? I mean, it's like I can, I can, I know how to, I know how to weld. You taught me how to weld. I know how to solder. You taught me how to solder. What else is there? I can buy a pipe stand. wrench, right? We're done. <laughs> yeah, I got, yeah, I got a pipe wrench. It's like <laughs> life is good. So wait a minute. So earlier you said 
and I, I think I corrected you and you finally said, Hey, yeah, you can win an argument with a partner, but you can't win it with your dad. Clearly you won this argument because you raised the labor rate. Well, I mean, I, I don't know whether I would say I won the argument. I would say I changed, I made a change <laughs> based on the information that I came that I came back to the shop with. My I think I scared my dad. I think I scared him to the point where he, he, my behavior was so atypical from what it generally had been before that I think he was left with no alternative but to allow me to go ahead and try it. I think more than anything else to prove to me that I was wrong. Right. That's probably true. Absolutely. And yeah, and yeah. the bottom line was the bottom line, $6 more an hour for every hour that we build, which was huge back then. Back then, and, that's a lot of money. Sure. Sure. You know, I, I, I've said this for years. We were, we, you know, <laughs> we were really good at struggling. We had the struggling part of this industry, <laughs> industry down cold. You know, generationally, we had we had, we had years and years to perfect the struggle. We're, we're kind of we were kind of new at the success side of it. So that's what began that cars, the first cars in Dick Finney started me on that journey and the realization that it didn't have to be this way. I asked you to circle back to that really. You know, we had fun with the fact that, you know, you won your, that argument. But the truth is, is that, again, it's, it's the same struggle we have in the shops today, you know, and it, whether it's the coach client relationship, whether it's, the, you know, the family relationship, whatever it is, somebody sees something that needs to be changed and somebody else says, you can't do that. And we, we dig in and we say no. And so often it's just like you said, it's fear. That's and I, you know, I just thought it was important to point that out that, you know, th these generational conversations that they, they don't change. <laughs> They're the same. Nope. No, they don't. And, but you know, talking about fear is really interesting to me because Having been a writer for so long in the industry, I have a tendency to go ahead and remove myself from a situation and then sit up here on the corner looking down at the situation, observing what's going on in order to explain it, in order to go ahead and, and, uh, and share it uh, with, a, with a greater number of people. And, and fear fascinates me because, I mean, it's, it's either becoming paralyzed by something that may or may not happen in the future or it's becoming paralyzed by something that happened in the past over which you no longer have any control. So it's kind of a useless it's emotion. Yeah, it really is. It doesn't do a lot for you except try to paralyze you one way or the other. And, and moving forward, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? I, well, I think that, we can go out of business, right? And, and I was perfectly okay with that, by the way. Right. I mean, I really was, but the fact of the matter is, you have to recognize that in order to have been in business for any length of time, you're fairly resilient. You've, rea you've reacted to a number of different kinds of problems that have occurred, calamities that have occurred in the past. That should be enough to power you forward through whatever fears that you have about what might happen if you change your labor rate or if you go and get the money that you deserve, you know, for the investment that you've made. You know, it's interesting. If you went ahead and, and gave your money to a financial institution, you'd have some kind of an expectation upon whatever kind of return you'd get. Mm -hmm. And and you'd want the most return you could possibly get. And yet, if you're in business, you don't think that way about the return you get from your own business. That's a great analogy. I like that. Yeah. You know, so it's an investment. You, you're entitled to whatever percentage th that's coming your way. And, and 
And that started me off on a journey that that is, takes me up to the taking me up to the present um, in my my quest to help shop owners achieve the success they deserve. Uh, and 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 now even more than in 1984, we need to save the industry. We need to salvage the industry. We need to save the industry. Uh, otherwise, there's going to be a real problem in the future. I wrote a I wrote a column in 1985 or six uh, called "The Teller of Tales," and it was uh, was something different from anything I'd ever done before. But it was a uh, an allegory about an, an era in which the cars didn't run anymore because there was nobody to fix them. There was nobody to take care of them, and about this really strange, mystical kind of garage, and one of the last people in the in the society that was able to actually make a car run. And he was the teller of tales telling them about the society as it had once been mobile free. That helped paint my view of what it is that we do. Uh, I don't think that I don't think that we recognize how important we are to the functioning of society as it is. Everything that you have, I don't care where you are, I don't care who you are, where you're sitting listening to me, virtually nothing in your immediate vicinity, virtually nothing that you can put your hand on from where you're sitting right now did not get to you through by virtue of a motor vehicle of some kind or other, truck, car, whatever. Mm -hmm. So those of us who have chosen to keep those vehicles running over time play an important, a critically important, an essential, perhaps for the first time recognized as as essential role in how our our society, our culture functions. And if we don't do something to make it more appealing to go into this business, we're going to be in real trouble trying to keep those wheels moving. You know, Mitch, I got to say that what you said is so true because I I think about it along the same lines. And and in my mind, what the automobile does for all of us, and I think more along lines of the consumer, the end user here, the ones we're servicing the vehicles for, but what what does it provide us? Freedom, right? I mean, that's what it represents freedom. No, that's the critical point. Once you recognize that fixing a motor vehicle, passenger car, truck, has a certain amount of value, a finite amount of value within reason. But what's freedom and mobility worth? Freedom and mobility. $6 more an hour, I would hope. $6 (laughs) more an hour, exactly. Or 20 Right. In that case, by by today's standards, that might have been 30 I don't know what the, the conversion there is, but $6 back then was a lot of well, It was labor. 20% of whatever the labor rate was. Yeah, so if, you, if you're at $120 an hour now and you raise it 20%, you know, you're raising it $24. So there you go. There's, that's a lot of money. It was a chunk and it made a huge difference. It made it possible for me to have this conversation with you now because mm-hmm. it kept us in business that much longer until we learned that much more. You know, and not to harbor on this labor rate thing, because I, I know you have more stories you want to share, but I just wanted to throw out to everybody listening that, you know, we're in a very difficult time right now in many ways, you know, with all the stuff that we're dealing with, with the aftermath of, I, I hope I'm not speaking too prematurely, but the aftermath of COVID, right? The, um, the, the issues with shipping and what's happening with new car manufacturing because of the chip plant, all these things, they're really causing challenges, some most not good, but some good challenges in our business. The one good thing I can say that really has come out of COVID is, is allowed us a unique opportunity that we've never had and probably never will in the lifetime that we're all in, which is 
a chance to get our industry to catch up with where it slipped in terms of its labor rate. So many have done nothing for so long. All of our expenses are going up everywhere we go right now to, to buy stuff. It's, it's, it's just more and more and more. We know it. It's acceptable in our world right now. This is the time. As I said to my members not that long ago, this is carpe diem, right? <laughs> Seize the day. This will never, ever, ever happen again. Jump on this, regardless of our fears. It, it's incredibly important that, that, take, that, that whoever's listening to this takes that to heart, at least to some degree. Otherwise, there'll be no industry left to save. Because all the people that are capable of fixing, you you tell me, you tell me anyone that can fix, that can diagnose, successfully diagnose and repair a contemporary motor vehicle, you tell me what job they couldn't do somewhere else. If they're smart enough to do that, they could work in aerospace, they can work anywhere they want to work mm -hmm. and make as much as they can possibly make. So why would they want to fix cars? Unless you give them a home where fixing cars is a respectable profession that's worthy of compensation commensurate with every other profession. It can't be in our minds anymore, right? What you said is true. I, I, I feel the same way about this industry. This industry has done so much for me, and I feel so blessed to be a part of it. And, and one of the main reasons why I was attracted to being a coach in the first place was the fact that I can give some of that back. You know, it's, it's over the years I've, I've now you know, in the classroom and some other things, this is a podcast, right? I mean, this is giving back. For me, that's what drives me, as, as you shared about you. But my, my point is, though, that if, if the people don't know that, they're going to they're gonna come out of high school and where are they going to go? They're going to go where they can get $60,000 a year to start a great career, right, without any of the BS and, you know, oh, well, we'll pay you minimum wage and you got to buy your own tools. And, you know, if we don't charge enough, we won't be able to get those people. <laughs> That, that was the same thing that I wrote about in 1984. Identical, <laughs> almost word for word. Almost word for word. Mm. So the realization is clear. And, and the one thing that the, the biggest problem is the fact that, that we as an industry are always continually looking around for somebody to come in and fix it for us. Just like our customers are looking to us to fix their cars for them. We're waiting for somebody to come in on a big white horse and fix the automotive service the repair community problems. And it's just ain't going to happen. I mean, we'll be waiting a long time because it hasn't happened since 1984. Why would, why would it happen now? Why would it happen all of a sudden? So you, you've got to start the, the sentence with I. You know, the, the critically important thing is to recognize that the only thing standing in your way between struggle and success may be you before you start looking wait, around. Wait, maybe else, you? Maybe. <laughs> I think you're being a little kind. <laughs> well, I mean, it could be. <laughs> Just, you know, if you open your mind wide enough to accept the fact that it could be you. I mean, one of my one of my favorite stories, and I shared this with you earlier, is is. One of the most important lessons I ever I ever learned was from a, a very dear friend and mentor of mine, in which he was talking about when he was a, a manufacturer's representative in Pittsburgh in the winter. That was his area. That was his territory, right around that greater metropolitan area. And he was for a friction manufacturer from a brake company. He and his wife were sitting reading the Sunday morning paper when his son came in from outside, came in through the utility room. And you, you got to figure the kid's like six, seven, eight years old. He's bundled up and 
in a parka with a with a hood on and he's got his idiot mittens on and he's covered with mud and snow and yuck and he's got tears running down his eyes he can't catch his breath and surely ray's wife looks at him and says christopher he said what happened and he looked at he looked he looked at his mother and he said he said he said he said he said he said billy johnson just 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 punched me in the face and pushed me down the hill and Shirley looked over at him and she said, Christopher, start the sentence with I. And he said, yeah, 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 Billy punched me in the face and he, he pushed me down the hill. And she got up from the table. She walked over to where he was and she went down on one knee and she took his little chin and her hands between her index finger and her, you know, and her, and her thumb. And she said, Christopher, start the sentence with I. And he said, I, 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 kicked, I kicked Billy Johnson in the stomach and then he punched me in the face and pushed me down the hill. So if you want, you know, what do you bring to the party? What is your responsibility in all this? If everything around you is changing and your situation is not changing, maybe it's your fault. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're unwilling or unable to make the changes you need to make because fear is crippling crippling you and and that's that's difficult and, and it's real don't don't misunderstand me i'm not i'm not i'm not belittling the fact that this is a real problem i hear the same voice in my head that you hear in your head all the time it, it, that goes back to when you were a kid in kindergarten right do you remember when you were a kid in kindergarten and the teacher asked a question and you had the perfect answer and you were all excited and you raised your hand and you gave your answer, and everybody in the class laughed at you. And that may Wait, have been. The last I never time had you... that experience. I was always smarter than everybody else. <laughs> that is so true. What you just said. And then you stop raising your hand. Yep. Just yep. you know, the the fear is real. Nobody wants to be, you know, and nobody wants to be made fun of. Nobody wants to, you know. And you hear that voice in your head. I heard that voice in my head when I decided I was going to raise the labor rate by twenty percent. You're going to go out of business. Customers won't like it. They'll know immediately. They're going to challenge you at the, at the counter. And what are you going to say to them? You know, and, and it's a wonderful industry filled with wonderful people, but we all make universal mistakes. I mean, it's funny because no matter where you go, and I'm sure you've had this experience, Jeff, when you're talking to, to one of your new clients, and, and that is you, you hear the inevitable quote, I'm, I think I'm going to have it put on a sign. And, and if I ever go back into business, which I'm not going to do, but if I ever do that, I'm going to have it on the wall. It's a, you don't understand. It's different here. <laughs> oh, I had, a, I had a few others in my mind, but that's a big one. Yeah. That's, you know, you don't understand things are different around here. And yeah. the bottom yeah. line is what I used to say when I was doing seminars around the country, I said, you read my articles. Yeah. Do they make sense to you? Yeah. They sound familiar to you. Yeah. I mean, I've had people, I literally had people call me up on the telephone at the shop to tell me that they, they were convinced that I had a camera in their <laughs> shop because the guy that I had just written about either showed up at their place after I wrote about it or before I wrote about it and they recognized right. it. So it's, it's universal. I mean, you can't get away from it. If we allow ourselves the freedom, the luxury, to open our minds and, and recognize what's possible, what could be, then uh, we change everything. If, we, if we're able to go ahead and change the paradigms through which we see the world, the, the lenses, you know, I, and I, I said this during countless seminars, I wear glasses. If I, take the world, if I take my glasses off, the world looks very different than it does with my, it's out of focus, it's blurry. 
I see double without my glasses on. But if I put my glasses on, everything's clear. And that's what paradigms are. They're assumptions. They're the way we see the world, right? If you change one thing, you change everything. If you change those assumptions about what's possible, what's necessary. I'm sorry, I mean to cut you off, but when you think about what you said earlier about the labor rate and how that applies to what we're saying right now, I can't because, right, I'll lose customers. and I, the, the, All the negative things come into mind. You know, when you say, you know, put on the glasses and see it more clear, you know, how often have you ever heard somebody say, um, well, okay, if I change the labor rate, say if I add $6 to labor rate, you know, all these bad things could happen, but also here's some good things that could happen. Uh-huh. Do we ever go there? Uh-huh. Or is it always just all the bad? I think we, I think I, I was blessed to work with my dad for 38 years. He, he was, he was the ultimate Zen master who didn't know anything about Zen, but especially for those shop owners who came to the front office through the shop, through the service space. This is really true. And I'd be really interested in feedback from whoever's listening to this. In order to be a good, in order to be a good- Put the feedback in the notes, folks. In order to be a good diagnostician, what's the first thing that you have to do when you're looking at a car? You have to figure out what's not wrong with it and ignore everything that's working right. Mm -hmm. Think about what you just said about looking into a future that could be better, could be different, could be more powerful, could be more profitable. We don't do that. Because we're trained from the beginning to look at faults. Interesting. To look at, we're trained, and, and the better we are at that, the faster we can diagnose a car and the more money we can make, ultimately, right? So we take, if you're right-handed, you take your right forearm and you brush away everything that's working properly in your business. And all you do is focus on what's not working properly. Wow. What a, what a connection. You, yes. you, you see it. You see the problems. I, I don't think there's a shop owner that you can talk to that doesn't recognize all the things that are wrong with his business. He knows them all. Yeah. He just doesn't know what to do about them. And then once he knows what to do about them, he's got to somehow find the courage, the reinforcement to do that. And that's why that's where community comes in. That's why community is so critically important. I stopped talking about the service industry a long time ago and started talking about the repair community for that reason, because I think it's so important. Yeah, everybody, there are all these sayings that, you know, homilies that people use is, you know, if you're in, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. Right. You know, so the bottom line is you need to be in a room where there are lots of smart guys, because I can guarantee you they've all had the same problems that you have, have had, or are about to going to, or are about to have. And I think that's an important lesson to, to keep in mind. And, and you can just check your ego at the door. Hey, we have a fundamental that says that. Yes. Check your ego at the door. Check your ego at the door. Take the I out of the equation in that respect. Mm-hmm. You know, I is really important in figuring out what you're doing to go ahead and stand in your own way, what you're doing to, to uh, slow down the process, what you're, what you're doing. You know, if you look at the one constant in your business from its inception, from the moment you took over, it'd be you. <laughs> That's it. So if you don't like the way things are going, maybe the thing to change is your behavior. You don't have to change you. You don't have to get out. Although in some instances, maybe that's the best. <laughs> that might be the answer, right? But that's the best idea possible. We're all, we all have to recognize where our strengths are and where our weaknesses are. And, and one of the other lessons I learned from Ray was that you hire your weaknesses. You know, you don't need to hire somebody who's good at what you do. You're already good at it. What you need to do is hire somebody who's good at what you're not good at. And then you have to pay them what they need. I'll give, I'll give you some wisdom from a really good friend of mine. Told me once upon a time that the secret of a long and happy life. I'm going to give you 
two little two little gifts. Secret of a long and happy life is to find something you love to do, learn how to do it well enough so somebody's willing to pay you to do it, and then learn to live on what it pays. I didn't like that, so I modified it. I said the secret of a long and happy life is to find something you love to do, learn how to do it well enough so somebody's willing to pay you to do it, and then learn how to make it pay what you need to live on. All right. You like drive the bus. Too. Yeah. Yeah. You drive the bus. And and another another thing that somebody else taught me was a senior diagnostician technician at a Chevy agency, very successful guy, is that I think the three rules were uh, the three rule, rules were fix the car, get paid, protect the shop. Let that sink in for a while. Fix the car, right? Get paid for it. And you can put whatever connotation you want to that. Uh-huh. Right. And protect the shop. Now, the thing that's interesting to me about most shop owners, and I'd be interested in your answer, is why aren't shop owners making more money than they are? And the only answer I can come up is because they don't think they're worth it. Right. No, that's very true. Or maybe they're, they're always comparing themselves to the dealer and thinking that they're the dealer's better than them. And I know they know they're not, if they do. I think they have they have they suffer from the imposter sin- syndrome to some degree because there's no generally accepted practices. There's no formal education process that to teaches technicians how to be technicians. There's no generally accepted accounting practices like framework mm-hmm. to live with. So we always believe that somebody else could have fixed it better, faster. That's one of the fears that I've encountered in, in my conversations with shop owners and technicians. Well, you know, Mitch, that may be true. I would say if you believe that, then that should drive you to figure out a way to do it better and faster and not just believe you're inferior. That's the difference. No, I think that that's really critically important, but it takes a very high it takes a very high level of consciousness to get there. In order to get there, you've got to go anybody that's familiar with psychology is probably familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. All right? In order to get to that stage of self-actualization, you got to go through four other stages. To get there, you have to go through, you know, physiological needs. You got to go through the need for security, the need to belong, right? The need, the need to be esteemed highly by others. Those are very high levels of consciousness and graduated there. And, and I'm not sure all of us are on that same journey. You know, of the three things you mentioned, that last one, protect the business. I, you know, you asked for what you may think I might think of that. I have to tell you that is at first when you said um, get paid for it, my first thought was, be profitably getting paid for it or something along those lines. Yeah. But then when I heard you say, protect the business, that brings profit in, doesn't it? Because if you aren't profitable, you can't protect the business. If it's your belief system that's responsible for that failure, you put everyone else involved there in jeopardy. And the thing, the, the thing to remember, and a lot of shop owners don't even, they, they don't, they should understand it, but they don't understand it, is that it may be your business. It may be your name on the door. If you have another technician working with you, you're responsible for two families. If you've got somebody in the office answering the phone, you're responsible for three families. If you've got three technicians working with you, you know, just do the math. Take a moment and recognize this. When we turn around and say something like, fix the car, diagnose and repair it properly, because most shop owners have no idea what the cost of a comeback really is. I used to figure it was more than three times the cost of the, the, the cost of the original repair because of lost time and what have you. Get paid, you know, that's more or less 
that's more or less obvious, I think, in many respects. But when it comes to protect the shop, we all tend to think about that in terms of liability, you know, not doing something that's going to backfire and, and bite us in the butt, like not getting the wheels torqued on properly or whatever. We don't think about it in terms of profitability, which is the point you just brought up. And without profit, there isn't anything else. So I think it's important for whoever's listening to this to take a moment and, and sort of wrap their arms around that and give it a hug. It deserves a little love. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think that it's funny. The reciprocal is also true, right? You know, if, if you are thinking to protect the business, you know, if, you, if you're thinking of those three things, you could very easily manipulate your own thoughts to believe that not raising the labor rate is protecting the business, uh, right? And that would, that would be so wrong. <laughs> but you, you can see how that might go. And well, you, can, you know, the world is filled with people that justify bad behavior every day. So, I mean, you know, um, you have to recognize that, that while you are truly responsible for your own actions and decisions, you're also responsible to all the people who decided to go ahead and marry their fate to yours. So it, it's something to be cognizant of, at least. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. You know, we, we talk all the time about how you've probably said it over the years that the most important people in a shop are the customers, right? But the reality is that's actually not true. It's the employees and the responsibility that we as business owners have to them. And when we take care of the employees properly and we do the right things by them, they also do that for our customers. That's really where the win is. Well, your customers are likely to treat your, your, your help, your employees, your associates, your team members, whatever you want to call them, whatever, whatever euphemism you want to use for them, are only going to treat your customers as well as you treat them. Yep. So the better you treat the people that are in your immediate universe, the better your customers will be treated and the better they will treat you in return. So what was the old thinking? The beatings will continue until morale improves, right? <laughs> <laughs> I had a copy of that cartoon somewhere. <laughs> so on that note, I think it's a perfect place to wrap up. Boy, I had so much fun, Matt, Mitch. I, I, this was fantastic. It really was. And it's funny, I'm looking at my notes and I'm going, there's so many more things that we could or should be talking about. And that's the beauty because I got a big reveal for everybody. A huge surprise that I hope you are as excited as I and Mitch are. And Mitch, I'm going to let you let the cat out of the bag. You didn't know that was coming, did you? I'm going to let you let the cat out of the bag because I think that it's going to have more impact coming from you. So Mitch, tell everybody the big secret. The big secret is that um, we had so much fun doing this and we've recognized that there's so much value in collaborating when it comes to bringing these kinds of messages to the industry that I'll be working with Jeff in the future. We'll be working on this podcast together to, uh, to bring you the kind of real world tactical information you need to make the decisions you need to make to, to achieve the success that you deserve. If you like me, you'll get more of me. It's Mitch is joining the Driving Change family. Yeah, I don't know that it's going to be every time we do this. Uh, it may or may not be. It just depends on how much you can join us, Mitch. But Boy, you, whenever we can, it's going to be Mitch and Jeff, and we'll be interviewing just like we always do, and hopefully we'll, we'll make it more fun. Not that it wasn't fun before, but more fun and, <laughs> and just have a, just a great time with whoever. So if you're listening to this and you want to 
be on the podcast if you were not sure before. And now that you're hearing, you're going to be able to do with, with not Jeff, but with Mitch and Jeff, then I would say this is the time. So please email uh, podcast at autotraining.net. Let us know you're interested, and we would love to set you up and be the very first one possibly to uh, join us at our next episode. Can I, and possibly if, you, if there's something that you would like to hear us talk about, or if there's a, an area of your struggle that you want to you wanna share or your success that you'd like to share, let us know that as well. That's a great point, Mitch. I hadn't even thought of that. And, you know, at the same time, maybe occasionally we'll just do you and I, and we'll just chat about an inter- industry topic or a, or a situation and just kind of banter it through like we did today. I, I think people would love that. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to working with you, Jeff. And I'm really looking forward to remaining a, an integral and active part of the ATI family. I can't tell you how happy I am to do this with you. It, this is just going to be so much fun. Really. I, I truly mean that from the bottom of my heart. You know, I've always loved doing this, but now I'm going to really love doing it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that said, Mitch, till next time. Thank you. Thank you. Can't wait. All right, everybody. Sharpen your pencils. It's time for reflection. Mitch, wow. (laughs) Let's just say that. I absolutely enjoyed our time together and I can't wait to do more of these. I hope you all are as excited as the two of us are. And um, I'm really, really looking forward to interviewing whoever it is out there that wants to be the first one. So please don't forget to contact us, podcast at autotraining.net. All right, so what did Mitch talk about? Well, in a nutshell, he talked about the challenges and rewards of being a family-owned business and also the challenges that he faced, or many of the challenges that he faced in his career in the automotive world. I am still blown away by so many of the things Mitch talked about that he'd struggled with back in the early 80s that are so similar to the things we struggle with here today. Things like our labor rate. You know, when he said, if I'm smart enough to fix cars, I'm smart enough to be a plumber or an electrician. If they can do that and make more money than us, I just, that statement just absolutely blew me away. To raise your labor rate 20% to go from back then from $30 an hour to $36 an hour was a huge risk, at least in our minds, it was a huge risk. But in reality, it was no risk at all. As most of you are experiencing right now, that labor rates need to go up and your customers are pretty understanding of that. As a matter of fact, a lot of them expect that. They're surprised when they don't see prices up, as you are surprised when you go out into the world and don't see prices up because everything is more expensive now. You know, as we talked about in the podcast, that's one of the benefits, if you want to use that word, that COVID has provided us is the ability to regulate our labor rate and bring it to a level that it should be. It's taken away that huge amount of fear and just left us with a smaller amount of fear. Hopefully it's a fear that most, if not all of us, can surmount and get past. And I know many, many of you are already doing that. And I want you to know I'm proud of you for doing it because I know how difficult that can be. Fear tends to be something that 
causes us to freeze because we tend to focus on the negative side of fear, not the positive, right? What if? You know, well, if then this bad thing and that bad thing instead of, you know, what if? I can make more money. I can hire better people. I can pay more benefits. I can create, you know, cool things within the shop. I can buy more equipment. I mean, we don't go down the what if positive road typically. Change typically takes place because we're faced with no other options. That if we stay where we are, the inevitable is going to happen. So what have we got to lose? I loved Mitch's statement about starting the sentence with I. If, if we actually do take a moment to look in the mirror and say, I, whatever, right? I kicked Billy in the stomach instead of he pushed me. I am the reason that my shop is stuck where it is. I am the reason I can't raise a labor. I am contributing to my hiring issue because I won't let go the person I know I need to. I am affecting the training in the shop because I don't make it a priority to get trained. You know, all of those things, when we start it with I, it really does change the sentence. And, and I believe that it's the dialogue that we share with ourselves, what we say to ourselves that really matters the most. If we tell ourselves we're not worthy, then we're not. If we tell ourselves the dealer is better than us, then we are. If we tell ourselves we can't, then we're right. And, you know, Mitch really made that clear in his life experience and some of the stories he shared about that. It really sometimes is a challenge to tell ourselves the right things. But when we do, anything's possible. For those of you that started out as technicians and now own or run a business, Mitch's point about what we've learned as a diagnostician and how we relate that to our business. You know, we're trained to ignore what's good or what's working and focus on faults. That is so profound because now we've transferred all that knowledge and all that years of experience into running a business, which makes it really, really hard for us to move forward. Now it's a matter of focusing on the solution to these fixes. When it's somebody else's problem, someone else's car, for example, it's a whole lot easier to see what needs to be done. You know, I as a coach, as an example, and you on the other side of that, yeah, it's easy for him to say, he's not running the business. He's not stuck in this world. I get that, right? So I can give advice like that. I, I don't have any skin in the game. But when you have skin in the game, it's really, really hard to move. It makes it real challenging for you to do what you know is right. Your gut's telling you what to do. You know, people around you are telling you what to do. You know, and, and while they may not be 100% dead on with what they're saying, their advice makes sense. And it's up to us to really listen hard at what they're saying and not just dismiss it. But entertain it. Think about it. Start the sentence with I. Man, that was awesome. When we start with I, that's when we can summon the courage to do what we know we must. That's really what this is all about, right? Having the courage to take a risk or two, not worry so much about what might happen. Break a few eggs. 
omelets taste good. Mitch shared two nuggets of wisdom with us. The secret of a long, happy life is the first one. Find something you love to do. Learn to do it well enough so someone pays you to do it. And learn how to make it pay what you need to live on. If more people understood that, we'd have a lot more successful businesses out there. And I don't mean just getting by. I mean really successful businesses. You know, I think too often people play not to lose as opposed to playing the win. And that's living in fear. That's not taking risks. That's not really providing what you should be. You know, we, we learn at a young age that you know, the secret to success is to work hard and good things will come. And not to say that there isn't some truth to that. There is. But it's also work smart. They don't teach us that. They just teach us to work hard. We need to also work smart. The second nugget of wisdom that uh, Mitch shared with us was focusing on fixing the car, getting paid, and protecting the shop. Again, I think that goes back to the conversation we have with ourselves. We keep telling ourselves we're not worth it. You know, if someone can do it better, if we believe someone can do it better, don't accept that. Find a better way. If Henry Ford built the best car ever made when he put the Model T on the road, that's what we'd all still be driving. Someone said, we can do better. Actually, many someones said, we can do better. And yet somehow every year, you know, the automobile tends to evolve and get better and better. I know we could argue that. But from a consumer standpoint, the vehicle just keeps getting better and better and better. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a technological marvel if you really think about it. So if you liked what you heard today, I hope you're as excited as I am to welcome Mitch to the Driving Change podcast because I'm going to continue to pick his brain and we're going to explore every nook and cranny of what's in there if we can to get his years and years of experience recorded and out there for all of us to hear. Not to mention the fact that I'm sure he's going to be a fantastic help to doing the same with the guests that join the show. So again, please. Email me, podcast at autotraining.net. Let's get you to be the first interview with Mitch, and I look forward to seeing you next time. You have been listening to Driving Change from ATI. If you liked what you've heard today and feel you have something compelling to share with your fellow shop owners, we're waiting to hear from you. You can contact me, Jeff Berman, by emailing podcast at autotraining.net. Let me know what it is you can't wait to share and how I can reach you. Make sure you follow this podcast so you're notified when the next podcast is available. If you're unfamiliar with ATI and you want to learn more, you can check us out online at autotraining.net. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.